Bibles to the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. If there be found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman, that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods, and worshipped them, either the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain, that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then shall thou bring forth that man, or that woman, which have committed that wicked thing unto thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shall stone them with stones till they die. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put the evil away from among you. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, between matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment." And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall teach thee, or tell thee. Thou shalt do, thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee, to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God or unto the judge, even that man shall die. And thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shall possess it and shall dwell therein and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt say in any wise, set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shall thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to turn, uh, return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses for as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his judgment, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law, 
and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. This ends the reading of God's holy word. This chapter continues those principal instructions and reminders in five sections that Moses would give to the people of Israel before they crossed over the Jordan River to the Promised Land. At the end of the previous chapter, there was a prohibition given uh, regarding setting up of a grove, that is a wooden (coughs) idol near the altar of the Lord, along with any kind of pillar, monument, or image. Well, in verse 1 of our chapter, we are shown that the Lord's prohibition uh, was not simply against open idolatry or explicit syncretism when they came into the land, but also informed the content and quality of the sacrifices they were to offer themselves. All the sacrifices of bullocks or sheep were to be free of any noticeable, it says, blemishes, that is, any spot, stain, or some defect, or any evil favoredness, an older way of referring to some deformity or an abnormality or a malformation. The Lord was to be served with the best, not lazily and by halves, but a whole and healthy animal. To offer an animal with a blemish or deformity would have been, it says in verse 1, an abomination. Something morally abhorrent, or if we can speak in such a way, it would be disgusting unto the Lord. In this, we're reminded, aren't we, of our continual need to have our moral taste buds to be informed and renewed by the word of God so long as we are upon this earth. We must find reprehensible and abhorrent those things which God says he finds as such if we are to be holy as he is holy. A disgust, of course, not rooted in self-righteousness, but a strong distaste and repugnance that is measured by God's character, his commands, his reasonings, rooted in a desire and zeal for the glory of God to be magnified. Speaking of abominations, we have in verse 2 to 7, it turns to consider the civil punishment of any that go off into explicit and open idolatry along with the proper and just procedures to be followed in such case. First, we have the fact of the matter in verse 2 to 3 presented to us. After possessing the land which God gives them, one among them, whether man or woman, turns and serves other gods to worship them. From this We'll take a few observations. Number one, we notice that it says whether man or woman, that is, leniency was not to be regarded as to what gender uh, the person was. A woman, just as a man, is here held responsible for their idolatrous actions. Men and women, congregation, while we certainly do not deny the place and responsibility and authority of a husband or father over wife and daughter respectively, We learn from this passage that nevertheless, each of us, every one of you, man, woman, bears a measure of responsibility for uh, keeping our own heart, keeping our mind and our souls in the ways of the Lord and away from idolatry. Additionally, we observe in verse 3 that the idolatry warned against could have involved worshiping the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, the wonderful works of God which declare his glory, are in this instance made an end in themselves. The creature is elevated beyond creaturely status in the hearts of men. Furthermore, the worshiping and serving of these things makes up nothing 
of that which God has commanded them in verse 3. The Lord will remind his people that they do well when they stick close to what he's commanded and not be attracted to anything that is palatable, something that seems nice according to their imaginations. Their idolatry is called, in verse 2, working wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God, as well as transgressing his covenant. They were breaking the spiritual marriage bond with the Lord Jehovah by their unfaithfulness. An unfaithfulness which they were committing, says, in the sight of the Lord thy God. From the fact of the matter discussed in verse 2 to 3, there is the rumor of it in verse 4. That is, if it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it. That is, the story comes to the attention of the elders of the people, and there is a recognizable concern. Notice, though, the justice of God's procedure among men for such cases. The rumor and the hearsay does not lead to accusations and judgment. By contrast, there is diligent inquiry to follow this rumor. Consider the features mentioned of this inquiry in verse 6. That is, that no conviction will be established without the competent testimony of two witnesses or three. That is, no matter the horrid nature of the accusation, without the evidence of at least two to three competent witnesses, a guilty judgment was not to be rendered. Not even if there was one competent witness. In this we see God's care for justice among men, especially here as it concerns their lives, that none can so easily be rendered guilty by the community upon one person's word or accusation, even if the accusation were true and that witness is not lying. The Lord would not have that the life of men be regarded so cheaply among us, that he would require a competent and consistent evidence from more than one testimony. As an old saying would put it, it is better that a guilty person should be absolved than that he should, without sufficient ground of conviction, be condemned. Or as another similarly stated, Upon insufficient evidence, I had rather judge a witch to be an honest woman than judge an honest woman as a witch. Well then, after diligent inquiry, and the thing suspected is found out to be true, then is the man or woman, in verse 5, brought into the gates of the city to be stoned with stones until they die. Notice those witnesses in verse 7 shall be first upon him to put him to death. They're the first ones to cast the stones. If they're willing to bring testimony against the man or woman, they ought to be ready to put forward their hands as well, right? With their mouths against the evil they have supposedly witnessed. The hands of all the people then follow the witnesses in casting of stones, implying that their execution is dependent upon the verity of the witnesses' testimony. In this way, the community put the evil from among them at the end of verse 7, recognizing that this means of public and personal justice over the man or woman that would break the covenant and work wickedness among them was also the manner by which they preserved mercy for their people. To refuse to deal with this problem would be to refuse to take idolatry, idolatry seriously among themselves and the spreading and conniving at it and thereby invite the crosshairs of God's judgment over them. In the words of the Apostle Paul, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Well, considering cases of judgment, then verse 8 through 13 provides instruction on what was to be done when cases were to arise that were somewhat more complex and difficult to determine by the local judges. The case was to be brought to the higher court, 
in the place where God will determine for them, that is, wherever the tabernacle or later the temple was to be found. Verse 8 informs us that the cases that qualified for escalation in this manner were to be those that concern blood and blood, that is, either with respect of manslaughter or murder, plea and plea, some strife between two or more parties, stroke and stroke, a difficult case concerning leprosy in accordance with Leviticus 13 and 14, matters of controversy within thy gates, those cases that the local judges were unable to agree upon. Verse 9 tells us which body or court the case should be brought to, uh, in the place appointed, that is, quote, the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days. That is, we're to understand that this body, what ha- has been called in from the Greek language, the Sanhedrin, is the council or assembly that is seated together. The supreme court, as it were, was composed of two distinct powers, both civil and churchly. The churchly was represented by the Levitical priest who were in verse 11, to inform thee according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee. And it was civil as represented by the judge or judges, as some understand it, who were in verse 11 to inform thee according to the judgment which they shall tell thee. The decisions of this body and court did not have any other to appeal to. This was the supreme and highest court among the Jews. If a matter was determined here and a person persisted to do presumptuously, as it says, and will not hearken unto the priest or unto the judge, verse 12 informs us, that man shall die. And in doing so, thou shalt put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. That is, that all will recognize that there are teeth to the rendering and decisions of this court. And not only this court, but among God's people. The rulings of his priests and judges, the rulings of his servants and ministers, are not to be regarded lightly or as just mere advice, optional. God would have order and a brightness administered and maintained in his house. In this we see implied the importance of enforcement to rulings. A rule or law often carries little weight with it if it is not enforced. Say, if children are told to keep their hands to themselves, as a rule, say, for the classroom, uh, but after breaking the rule, say, through excitement one or two times, and they're not corrected, they're not disciplined, well, what ends up happening? Most of the time, it grows into open disregard of the rule because there's no enforcement of it. It's as though it doesn't exist. God would have both in civil affairs as well as churchly affairs that the God-ordained authorities order and lawful rulings be not disregarded or disrespected. And for each, he has provided distinct instruments for enforcement. To the church, he gives keys. To the civil authorities, he gives the sword. But we may ask, what if this Supreme Court were to rule wrongly in a most egregious way concerning a matter? What is to be done then? Well, the scriptures provide us explicit cases right, of that. Uh, We have Christ and the disciples as explicit examples who were brought before the Sanhedrin of their day and even commanded not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus that was to Peter and John. And what does, does Peter and John say? How do they respond? Well, their consciences are bound to a higher court. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Although God gives us authorities, congregation, he gives us parents, he gives us bosses, he gives us elders and governors, officers, judges, and courts, all which are to be respected. 
Nevertheless, the conscience can never be bound, as our confession rightly says, to an implicit faith or an absolute and blind obedience. And this not in order to the tearing down of powers and authorities which God has put in place, but rather, again, as our confession so well states regarding Christian liberty and the powers that God ordains, they, are, they mutually and uphold and preserve one another. Well, so much for the Sanhedrin and that Supreme Court. We then move in uh, verse 14. The Supreme Court that, God, that should be established once they are settled in the land, which is both civil and churchly, Moses provides now criteria for the setting up of a king among them, along with the manner by which his rule should be governed. The first thing we'll observe is that the supposed speech, which should begin the process of the election of a king. In verse 14, When thou art come unto the land, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. From this observe how the people were acknowledged to possess a power to make themselves a king in accordance with God's direction. Further, for those familiar with how the history unfolds, when the elders of Israel asked for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it is wondered why they're faulted for it in asking for a king. Well, the reason is to be found in that they sinfully sought to mirror the Gentile nations, saying in 1 Samuel 8, 20, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Here in Deuteronomy 17, 14, it is granted that they would legitimately ask for a king, that they should be like the other nations about them in that they have a king but not that they should do a desire and have a king who is like those other kings. Hence, the second thing we notice is the criteria the Lord requires. They should set a king over them, in verse 15, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. And this will be, quote, one from among thy brethren, not a stranger or foreigner. And although the Lord should choose a man, he is not yet king over them, until they, in verse 15, set him king over themselves implying the necessity for a people's free choice and election of who reigns over them. The third and last thing we will notice from uh, this passage is the manner by which he should rule. Negatively, verse 16, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, nor, verse 17, multiply wives, nor multiply to himself silver and gold. Stated positively, he should have him a copy of the law written for himself, verse 18, in order to have them by him at all times and read therein all the days of his life for the end that he might fear God, keep his commandments and do them. In verse 20, his heart be not lifted up above his brethren. And in doing so, he may, verse 20, prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. The king, we learn, is himself subject to law. And it is his attendance upon the law of God as king that he is kept from tyranny, from lifting up his heart above his brethren. God is glorified thereby, and the king's kingdom is honored, and the people are blessed. Well, with that, the Lord, who is able to do far more than we can imagine, be pleased to grant us leaders and rulers that would make attendance upon the law of God of primary importance to the execution of their offense. And that ends our time together in Deuteronomy chapter 17.